Alright, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28 tonight. That's Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 28. It says, By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw that he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. That's the section we're going to cover tonight, and actually there's a lot here that I can't wait to get into. And let's just start at it. As we look at the men and women of faith in this chapter, Moses' parents are actually mentioned now as men and women of faith. Now, just as for curiosity's sake, uh, in the story of Moses uh, being hidden and, and put in the Nile River in Exodus chapter 2, which we're going to look at in a little bit, his parents aren't mentioned by name, but as later on in the scriptures we find out that their names are Amram and Jochebed. All right. That reminds me of years ago when I was youth pastor at First Baptist Indy Atlantic. Um, just started giving everybody in the youth group biblical names, just for the fun of it. You know, if their name was Susie, we changed it to Dorcas if she wasn't so smart, and that kind of stuff. And we 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 have lots of fun like that. But we actually named a couple of kids Amram and Jacobed. And the reason why I would do this is to make these kids go find their name in the Bible. They'd say, Pastor Jim, what's my name? And I'd say, You are. Amram. And they'd say, well, where's that? I said, you got to go find your name in the Bible. you know. And it was a lot of fun way to do it. And uh, we actually have kids that still call themselves Amram and Jochebed, and they're in their 40s now, so or 30s at least. So had a lot of fun. Being, Becky and I were, were, were Jacob and Rachel. Figure that one out for yourself. <clears throat> now, it's interesting, though. Their act of faith was to disobey Pharaoh's order to kill their child. And to hide him for three months and then trusting God to pro- God's provision and protection by putting him in a basket in the river. And so we're going to get to in a little bit what it means to fear God, so stick with me on that one. But for right now, let's deal with this thing that it says that, that they saw that he was no ordinary child. Now to be really honest with you, we've got we to gotta deal with this. There's, there's something tough here because... You know, did they did they give birth to this child and go, wow, this is a special one. Let's not kill this one. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Mine says beautiful child. Yours says beautiful. And actually, that's along the line. They saw that there was something special about this child. Go back to Exodus chapter 2, and you'll see some other descriptions of how he was. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. See, because I'll be honest with you, if, if you decide whether or not the kids should live or die, be, how good looking they are, they're all going to go. Because, <laughs> have you ever seen a beautiful baby? I'll be honest with you, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble with women, but you know, they'll say, oh, he's so beautiful. I'm thinking, man, wow. You know, especially if they were in the birth canal for a long time and they come out with the cone heads and all that kind of stuff. This can't be that they saw that this child was good looking. There has to be something more to it. Alright, take a look at Exodus chapter 2. It says, Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, my translation says, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now when Moses is born, he's got... um, an older brother named Aaron. He's got an older sister named Miriam. Chances are, at this time, she's probably only around five years old. Yes, ma'am, I saw your hand in the back. It doesn't mention the father in this decision. Not here. Not in this place, but Hebrews shows us that it was mom and dad together. Yes. I just find yep. it interesting that the initial yep. account yep. not, I don't know why. And, and as I've wrestled with this, I have to be honest with you, I don't see in Scripture that these would be the kind of people that say, this is a good-looking child, let's keep this one alive. That last one we killed was ugly. There's something more to it than that. And the only thing I could come up with is, they sensed there was something special about this child. That God had something in mind for this child. And then, of course, they had to make the decision, do we listen to the king's edict and kill it, 
Or, I'm going to throw it in the Nile. Well, in a sense, they threw it in the Nile. Are you saying that the parents had to do that themselves? Yes, that's what the edict was. Yeah. Or the Pharaoh would. Or the Pharaoh would. When they got older, that's the thing is they hid the child for three months. And when they're real little, you can hide them because their cries aren't as loud and whatever. But there comes a point you can't hide this child anymore. And let's be honest, if this is happening where many of the other boys that age are being put to death, well, not only has someone gone to squeal, they might squeal because, hey, you, I killed my kid, you didn't kill yours. But it, how about the fact that he just grows up and there's nobody in his class? You ever thought about that? Yes, exactly, that kind of a thing. So there came a point where they realized this is going to be found out. And so what they did, though, was they put him in this basket and put him in the river. Now, we're told to throw him in the river, and they put him in the river. Now, as we're going to see in a little bit, their act of faith was to disobey Pharaoh and to trust God. That's very important. Because you're going to see that the definition of fearing God may be a lot different than you expect. We've always heard about fearing God. And we've always been afraid, that, that had this picture of God's going to get me. I'm going to show you that it's not what the Bible teaches when it comes to fearing God. All right? Yes. Sure. It seems to me that that the Jews would have not killed their own children. Of course, the Pharaoh would have to do it, I guess. Mm -hmm. But that would definitely be against God's God's will for you to be killing your child. Right. It just seems to me that that was, they got it. Well, they understood that, that it, it was never God's plan to kill your child. You're right. But, yes, sir, go ahead, Chris. It's okay, go ahead. Well, isn't it just as possible that because the Pharaoh's edict was you should kill the boys but let the daughters live, that if the baby was physically pretty, pretty then they figure, well, well, as a baby, put a pink hat on <laughs> You know, that, and that is a possibility because, like I said, I've wrestled with these terms and I've looked at them and, and wrestled with all different places. The, the, the biblical definition is they thought it was a good-looking kid. So, and so, and as you know, with babies are little, it is hard to tell if it's a boy or a girl unless they dress it a certain way. That's a possibility. Go ahead, Becky. We're about to read that, actually. We're about to read that. Go, go to Exodus chapter 1. Because this will begin us down that road of helping to understand what it really means to fear God. Exodus chapter 1. We're going to read actually verses 8, eight through, through verse 22. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. And this will begin to help us to, to develop our definition of fearing God. And hopefully by the time we walk through all this, as we look back to what we've been wrestling with, some more things will make sense. It says, uh, verse 8... Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Remember, the Pharaoh that had put Joseph into power respected Joseph and he had been giving him all this authority. Well, of course, Joseph has died. The Israelites are now in slavery in Egypt. Uh, and a new king who didn't know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them in force, with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kind of work in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, When you help the women, Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him, but if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do uh, what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrived. So that God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So who, who's, who's received the edict to throw the boys into the, into the Nile? Pharaoh's people. Yeah, so 
All we see now is, is that Amram and Jochebed realize this is a good-looking kid. This seems to be a special kid. And they hit him. But they realize they're going to come to a point where we can't hide him anymore. And at that point, they put him in a basket. And they pretty much are saying, if this guy makes it, God is going to have to protect him. Correct? Yes. I mean, that's ultimately what they're saying. If this child makes it, God's going to have to be the one that takes care, takes care of him. We can't protect them anymore. But look at this story here about the midwives. They did not fear Pharaoh. They feared God. Now, was it that they were afraid that God was going to get them? No. What it means is, they believed that their protection and their provision came from God, not from Pharaoh. In other words, they weren't looking to Pharaoh to take care of them. They disobeyed Pharaoh, and most likely he would not take care of them by disobeying him. They did not fear Pharaoh in that sense, but they trusted by doing the right thing that God would take care of them. And folks, this is your biblical definition of to fear God. To fear God means that you believe that God will take care of you. You believe that God is more powerful than whatever situation you're dealing with, and you fear God in the sense of you're going to obey what He says, and you're going to trust Him to take care of you. That's what it means to fear God, not... You know, oh no, God's going to get me. Fear God. You know he's big enough to do what he says he'll do. You know that he's big enough to do what he said he would do. Yes, that's the whole picture we're getting here. So when we talk about fearing God, it's not a, oh no, God's going to get me. It's God is able to do what he said he would do, and I'm putting my full faith in him. That's the biblical definition of fear. Alright? Now, let's take a look at it some more and you'll see. Alright? Uh, I, I wrote this definition if this will help you. To fear God is to obey God in His Word and look to Him alone to provide for your protection and for your provision. Okay? Now, you're going to make see that definition become a whole lot more clear as we go back now and take a look at how Moses, how he grew up and he feared God. Alright? Let's take a look. It says, He did not look to Pharaoh or his position as Pharaoh's grandson for his future provision or protection. I'm sorry, we're back in Hebrews chapter 11. We see how uh, by faith, verse 24, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now we'll come back to that and deal with a whole lot more there, but let me read to you how I paraphrase this section. He did not look to Pharaoh or his position as Pharaoh's grandson for his future provision or protection. He instead looked beyond that to God's promise for His people with whom Moses chose to associate himself. Instead of claiming the immediate and future blessings of being the royal, of the royal Egyptian family. In other words, could he not have been taken care of and protected by being Pharaoh's grandson? I mean, good grief. You want to talk about protection and provision. Now, he even, some people believe, he was in line to possibly be Pharaoh himself one day if he stuck around. Now, if, how many of you know much about this? How did they view the Pharaohs? As gods. It wasn't like he chose a pie in the sky down the road versus nothing. He had already at his disposal, because of who he was, being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he had all of the protection and the provision of all of Egypt at his hands. But he didn't fear that. Do you see that? He didn't put his trust for his protection and provision in that. He feared God, and he put his trust for his protection and his provision in God. And he chose to be associated with the Hebrews and not the Egyptians. Think about that. He knew who he was. That's why if you read the story later on, where he sees the Egyptians beating the Hebrew slaves, and he gets mad and he kills the Egyptian. For doing it. Why? Because he knew he was a Hebrew and he was doing it. This was being done to his people. Moses chose to be associated or rather chose to be called a Hebrew than an Egyptian. He, why? Because he feared God. He believed that God, as Allison put it well, was big enough to do what he said he would do. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to pull out. Moses not only chose to see himself as a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. He was born a Hebrew, raised in an Egyptian world. 
Yet he chose not to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time, but he chose the disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value and worth waiting for. We're going to break this section down. I'm going to read it to you again. We're going to break this into two sections here to break this down. All right? All right. He was born a Hebrew. He was raised in an Egyptian world, yet he chose not to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Now, we have a quick tendency to say, um, well, that's because the Egyptians drank and smoked and partied and all that kind of stuff. No. Why would it have been sin for him to associate himself with the Egyptians instead of the Hebrews? Their worship. Keep going, there's a lot more to it. Okay, what do you, um, that's part, but what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the mistreatment of his people? Okay, so you're saying by, by associating with the Egyptians, he would have become the people mistreating his own people? Definitely. Right. Yeah, this is all true, but I'm intentionally pushing somewhere. If he was brought up as an Egyptian, how did he know he was a Hebrew? How did he know he was a Hebrew? First of all, I'm sure by how he was looked, and he was actually, if you know the story, he not only was in the basket after he was three months. Miriam was there when the Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Miriam says, hey, do you want me to find a, a Hebrew lady to nurse her, nurse this child? Because I'm sure at the time, Pharaoh's daughter wasn't able to, to produce milk. And he went back and he was stayed with his mom until he was weaned. And so during those years, she instilled in him as well. It could be almost four or five years old, at least three, if not longer. And so I'm sure in that years, of, he was taught that he was a Hebrew. And of course, growing up, he looked a lot more like the people who were the slaves than he did the Egyptians. He might dress like them. There was a time when he went off and fled to Midian and he was there by the, the well and the, the daughters there uh, of uh, um, Jethro, he has actually a couple of names, Ruel, and that's part of the story. Uh, they said an Egyptian helped us. They, but that was because of how he was dressed. And but, he was extremely beautiful, obviously, that she would take that chance. Mm-hmm. Yep. But let's go back question. Why is it described as pleasures of sin? We keep trying to, trying to find out what the specific sins are. It's the flesh. It's not the spirit. Yes. Listen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Remember that? In other words, we must live our lives according to what God's plan for us is. Anything we do that is not lined up with God's plan for us is what? I don't care if it's a great thing in the eyes of the world or in the eyes of the church. If it's not what God has chosen for you, it is sin. This whole chickpea thing. That's why we're praying. Because I could rationalize it in lots of different ways and sell it to whomever I wanted that this is best. But I want what God has chosen because anything else would be sin. Now that hits home with us. Do you understand the difference? It's easy to sit back and say, well, he was this or he's that, far off, looking at what sin he committed. But what the Scripture is really talking about is, anything that is not what God has chosen for you is sin. How about that? So, he chose to be mistreated and associated as a Hebrew, and not as an Egyptian. It's an amazing thing. Now, we have to take it to ourselves now, a little bit. Isn't this descriptive of how we should live? We've been born into this world, into a chosen family through God's grace. The world we live in offers us many immediate pleasures that are in opposition to what's been promised us in the future. We too must choose whether we'll take what Egypt, if you will, offers, temporary rewards for a short time, or wait in obedient faith for what God has promised us in the life to come. That's why in the middle of that section in Romans 8 where Paul talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God, it then, he then goes on and says, for your sake we face death all day long. How often have we too as Christians trying to follow God by faith and yield to what we believe the Spirit of God is leading us to do, had even brothers or sisters come alongside of us and say, you don't need to do that. We have to be willing to fear God and trust for His provision and His protection because even this thing that was offered to us by someone who was well-meaning, if it's not the path that God has for us, it would be sin. David knew that he was to fight Goliath. And he went to go fight Goliath and Saul says, hey, why don't you wear my armor? 
And he tried it on, and what did he say? This doesn't fit. This isn't how I'm supposed to do it. This isn't me. And he went and fought Goliath as God had created him to fight Goliath, not as someone who was well-meaning tried to help him do it. As you walk with the Lord, there are going to be times when people say, do it this way. And in your spirit, you're going to sense that's not how God would have me do it. You and I had this conversation over the last few weeks, Suzanne, how there are people out there in ministry who they use man's methods of making phone calls and sending out flyers and making brochures and beating the bushes to go try and get places to speak. But I just, that doesn't fit me. But you see in Ezra and Nehemiah as they went to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in the city of Jerusalem, one of them asked the king for help and provision in doing so. The other one said, no, I'm going to totally trust God. And in both situations, it was right. But we have to. I'm not saying those who put the flyers out are wrong. But for what God is wired, how God has wired me and what He wants to accomplish in me, He said, Jim, I want you to totally trust that I will be your provision I don't want you to beat the bushes. I love how Vance Habner puts it. He said, you don't know, need to know a few key men when you know the keeper of the keys. <laughs> For me, it would not fit to go make phone calls to find places to speak. I'm totally trusting in God. And you know what? I've been plenty full for six years. And He will continue to do what He's been doing. But now... It said something here that I don't know if any of you caught it. Look at verse 26. He, Moses, regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. How did Moses know about Jesus? Could Moses have known about Jesus? Not by name. Not by name. Well, and you know what? The answer is he did and he didn't. And when we look at this, it's going to be so much of a fun study. Let's take a look at it. All right, He was looking ahead to what? The promise of God through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that we know culminates in Jesus Christ. But all that they had to hold on to at that time, if you remember our study from last week, the one that you didn't like too much. You told me it, just, it made you depressed because there's a chance we might have to wait. <laughs> okay, now I'm mad. <laughs> But if you remember last week, we looked at the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never received what was promised. They kept telling their family, it's coming. And it didn't happen in their family's lifetime. And then their family passed it on, it's coming. And we kept, they lived by faith that God would do what He said He would do. And we know now that it will be ultimately fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when they reign on the earth and they will be in Jerusalem and they will be in that land and it will be given to them. But... They had, God had made a promise to the nation of Israel through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that through you all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. And we know now who the through you was pointing to. It was Jesus. And so Moses, the only thing Moses had to look forward to was he had to choose. I'm Pharaoh's grandson and all that is with it right there and then. And folks, I don't think we could even fathom all that was offered with that. Versus, my people have been promised by God that one day they would be clearly revealed as His chosen and one day down the road will be rewarded. Had it happened that they could see in His lifetime? As far as He knew, His family had been enslaved for, for long before He was born and continue to be for a little bit longer after. But he hung on to, I believe, God's promise. Even though this looks really good, I'm going to take what's behind the curtain. That's a little game show reference. Some of you, some of you are old enough to catch it. <laughs> Folks, that's what he did. He hung on to the promise of God now, it culminated in Jesus Christ. And so that's why the Hebrew writer could say he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? He was looking ahead to his reward. Now, here's another thing though. By associating with God's people and all of their future promises, he was also associating with Jesus who was and is and always will be intricately united with the people of Israel. 
I want to show you some things that you might not have seen before about how Jesus is intricately tied with the nation of Israel. Uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, look at verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what God's telling Moses to say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn, my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son. We all know about the plague of the death angel that kills all the firstborn. How many of you know it was because... God said, you wouldn't let my firstborn son go. Israel's my firstborn son, and you wouldn't let him go. Therefore, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do you see it? Now, Jesus has always existed. Yet the Bible describes Him as firstborn over this, firstborn over those who rose from the dead, and so on. Jesus is considered by God as the firstborn. The nation of Israel is considered the firstborn. Oh, but there's more to it than that. Jesus in His flesh and blood was what? Well, no, not in His flesh and blood. I mean, He was God in the flesh and blood. But His flesh and blood was what? He was Jewish. He was a Hebrew. In flesh and blood, Jesus was a Hebrew. Both mom and dad were Hebrews. He was a Jew. There's more to it. Jesus has also always been associated with the nation of Israel, even before He came in the flesh. Go to Isaiah 63. Look at verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 63, starting in verse 7. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which He is to be praised. According to all the Lord has done for us, yes, the many good things He has done for the house of Israel, according to His compassion and many kindnesses. He said, Surely they are My people, sons who will not be false to Me. And so He became their Savior. In all their distress, He too was distressed. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and mercy He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Do you see that? When they were distressed, He too was distressed. Why? Because He sees Himself as knit together with them. Oh, there's a neat picture in the New Testament that a lot of you might not have seen. When Paul is out there persecuting the church and throwing them in prison and having some put to death, Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and says, Paul, Paul, or at the time Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Did you catch that? He didn't say, why are you persecuting those Christians? He says, why are you persecuting me? And of course, Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. In other words, because of our uniting with Him in faith, and us becoming a part of Israel, if you will, in the sense, by faith. I don't, there's a plan for the nation of Israel, and there's a plan for the church. Please don't hear that incorrectly. But what I want you to also understand is in the same way, when we become a part of the family of God, children of God, join heirs with Jesus Christ, when someone messes with us, Jesus takes it personally. And He's been that way all along through the nation of Israel. When they did it to Him... You've done it unto... Did you catch that? Me. Remember, remember, Matthew 25 has been taught for too long as a church passage. It's not. The, the separating of the sheep and the goats is going to happen at the time of Jesus' actual second coming. The church will already have been raptured at that time. We'll have already received our rewards. We'll have already gone to the marriage supper. We're going to come back with Him. He's going to set up His kingdom on the earth. And if you look at Matthew 25, it says, when He comes and sets up His kingdom in heavenly glory, He will separate the sheep and the goats. He's going to gather all the nations. And He says, whenever I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. Whenever I was hungry, you fed me. 
you're going to be rewarded because if you've done it to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. And oh, by the way, it's talking about how the nations treated the nation of Israel. When you didn't do it to them, you didn't do it to me. That passage in Matthew 25 that the preachers have said is for us to give people water and go visit them in prison. Which, by the way, the Bible does say to do that in other places. But in the context of Matthew 25 and the sheep and the goats, it's at the time of judgment when He judges the nations. And He's already judged the nation of Israel. Remember, we studied in our Revelation study. He comes to where they are in the area of Basra and Moab. He takes away their sin. He then marches from there in his defeat in the battle of Armageddon all the way to Jerusalem, ascends the Mount of Olives, it splits in two, the millennial kingdom begins, and he then judges the nations. He gathers them all into the valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel chapter 2 says, and he's going to judge them according to the fact that they divided his land, and he then says, for the ones who treated Israel well, come. For those who treated Israel poorly, go to the goat side. But he says, when you've done it to these brothers of mine, he's talking about the nation of Israel. So when Moses, and there's another one more thing I want to point out to you, when Moses associated himself with the nation of Israel and not the Egyptians, he was associating himself with Christ. There's one more picture that's kind of cool. Go to Matthew chapter 2. He also knew the prophecy from Jacob about the Messiah coming from Judah. Definitely. So, and it's pointing to Jesus again. Right. The word Christ is the Messiah. Yep. If you didn't hear what Duke just said, he probably also, if he had been taught it, and most likely did, know about the prophecy from Joseph. That the, Remember, Jacob, Jacob uh, gathered all his sons right before he died, and then he prophesied that the, that the Messiah would come from Judah, which means the Christ or the promised one. In Matthew chapter 2, look at verses 13 through 15. So this is after Jesus has been born to Mary and Joseph. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Do you see that? In the same way in which the nation of Israel was called out of Egypt, Jesus went down into Egypt for a time and fulfilled the prophecy that He had been called out of Egypt. That prophecy, by the way, is in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. If you want to take a second to go there, it's kind of cool. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1-4. through 4. In Hosea chapter 11, in verse 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. See that? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. Do you see this picture here of how God is intricately involved in the nation of Israel? He's taking care of them. He's teaching them to walk. He's Providing for them, but they don't recognize it. They cry out, Where's God? And we do the same thing. Doesn't the scripture say that God will never leave nor forsake? Then how come we think that God's left us as children of God through Jesus? How come we think that He's mad or that He's turned His back or He's, he's not going to take care of us? As you look at the Scriptures all the way through, and you've heard me talk on this before, whenever there was an encounter with God, He initiated it. The Bible says in the book of Psalms that He holds our tears in a bottle. He knows the number of hairs on our head and the number of days we have on this earth. Folks, there are times when we feel like He's not there, but you've got to understand, He always is. And if you're willing to look back, you'll see, wow, God took care of me there. That was actually God. But you see it when you look back, unfortunately. But how many of us are willing to trust it in faith in the middle of the storm? He's here. What's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But for today, I know that He's here. And I'm going to be alright. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. He makes me lie down by the, street, the still waters. He restores my soul. He is the one who keeps doing this. And folks, the nation of Israel didn't see it. But He was always there. He was always there. And He's the same for you and me. And I don't know what you're dealing with, but don't think for a second that He doesn't know. 
It was interesting, years ago when I was pastoring in Chicago, um, a young man gave his life to the Lord. And the next day, I mean, we're talking, he was radically, awesomely, truly saved. The next day he had a nervous breakdown. And as I visited him at the hospital, his response was, how could God do this? I trust Him as my Savior, and then I have a nervous breakdown, and I said to him, have you ever thought about the fact that it was awesome that God came to indwell you to be with you through this journey, and He didn't have you go through it before He came to indwell you? And it totally changed how he looked at his situation, and he got better, faster. But he was thinking, why would God leave me to deal with this after I just trusted Him? And then when he looked at it in the proper way, thank God He came to indwell me to walk me through this. Folks, He didn't promise that once you trust Him, you'd be all better. In fact, He's, He said, in this life, will have trouble. You will have trouble. I have and He's there. He's there. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you so you can be with me where I am. Folks, when Moses associated with the nation of Israel, he associated himself intricately with Jesus Christ, whether he knew it or not. But he was looking forward to the promise of God, even though the promise of God didn't appear to be coming true at that time. Now, please don't think that to be a Jew means that you're automatically saved or associated with Christ. It's only the Jews who have faith who receive this salvation, just like us Gentiles. Moses associated with himself with Israel and Jesus by faith. Alright? Now, in the time we have left, I want to have some fun and take a look at one last passage and then encourage you as we wrap this up. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11, because there seems to be a contradiction here in this section we're about to read. In verse 27 it says, By faith he, excuse me, Moses left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Now if you know the story of when Moses left Egypt the first time, why did he leave Egypt? Because he killed the Egyptian, remember, and he buried him in the sand. And a couple days later he sees two Hebrews fighting with each other. He says, guys, why are you doing this? And one of them says, why, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? And he realized that word had gotten out about it. And the scripture literally says, he was afraid. And then Pharaoh tried to kill him and he took off running and he went to Midian. But here it says, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. You know what the answer is? This isn't referring to the first time that he ran. This is referring to when they left in the Exodus. You see, the first time he ran, he was in the flesh, remember? He, he wanted to be the Savior of Israel, and he tried to defend Israel, took it into his own hands, and killed the Egyptian, and that was of the flesh, and God wasn't in it. And the first time, he had to run. And while he was out there, he came by this well and these daughters of Ruel were there and shepherds were teasing them and making fun of them, making it hard for them to get the water for their camels. And Moses chased the shepherds off and he got water for these girls. And they got home way earlier than they normally did. And their dad says, how were you able to get water so quick? And they said, well, this Egyptian came and helped us. And the dad, for a lot of reasons, one of them thinking, i got seven daughters i got to marry off. <laughs> hey, dude, there's a guy that likes you. Let's get him back here. So they, they sent the guy back to go get him. And, and when he showed up there... He ended up marrying one of the daughters and going to work for his father-in-law and he tended sheep. And while he's out there tending sheep, you know what happens in chapter 3 of Exodus. He sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And he goes over and he begins his encounter with God. And he began to see who him who was invisible. First time he left, oh yeah, he was afraid. But this is referring to when they left in the Exodus. Was Pharaoh excited about that? He was angry. So much so that even though he said yes, he then said no, and then said yes, and then said no. And ultimately when his firstborn was killed, he said yes, go. But even then he changed his mind and sent the Egyptians after him to go kill them and bring them back. And they were all drowned in the Red Sea. This is referring to the exodus, not when he ran the first time. And only that, by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Forty years. He was out there for forty years. 
Later, he comes back. That Pharaoh that tried to kill him was no longer there. But it was still another Pharaoh that he had to deal with. Huh? 40, 40, and 40. He was 40 years as an Egyptian, or living in the Egyptian, 40 years in the wilderness, and then 40 years leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, um, look at what it says here. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. I mean, have you ever really thought about what's going on here? By faith, Moses had the nation of Israel put lamb's blood on their doors to protect Israel from the destroyer of the firstborn. Sounds a little wacky, doesn't it? It sounds like the destroyer would know who's who. Why do we need to put the blood up? God said, here's the thing. This is the, this is the fun road we're going to run down here, and I can't wait to show it to you. Alright? It must have seemed crazy at the time. But it made sense later, did it not? It makes total sense to us. Because it's a picture of what Jesus was going to do. Because they were to start their calendar all over in the Passover. And they were to start counting from that day, ten days. And they were to welcome a lamb into their house, one without blemish, and treat it as a pet. And then on the fourteenth day in the evening, they were to kill it. And to take that blood and put it on the door frames of their house to protect them from the death angel. And they were to remember this and eat this meal. And they were to carry this Passover meal with them wherever they went to remember and all this. And as Jesus comes many years later, He rode into Jerusalem on the day they welcomed the Lamb into the house and He was welcomed. He was then put to death and by God's grace, His blood is applied to the door frames of our hearts and all that. I'm going to get to you in a second there, Allison. And it makes sense to us now. It makes a ton of sense. We're like, wow, that's, a, that's awesome. What a great picture. But at the time, it probably made no sense. Yes, ma'am. And some of the Hebrews didn't do it. And some of the Hebrews didn't do it. But he did. Right. Here's where I want to take his road. I want to take it down. Are we willing to live in obedient faith now, believing that things will make sense later? I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to show you a whole run through scripture here. Are you willing to live in obedient faith to what God's word says now, believing that things will make sense later? Too many people today are not willing to take the step of faith until it makes sense. I challenge you to go back to these men and women of faith in the days in which they lived and how they lived by faith. Go to John chapter 13. I'm going to show you in a quick run through Scripture in the time we have left how much of this doesn't make sense now, but it will make sense later, is all through the Bible. In John chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus is washing His disciples' feet. Peter says, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And in verse 7, Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I'm doing. But later you will understand. And boy, that is a theme throughout Scripture. Letting Lazarus die made no sense. He was a friend. He had stayed in their house. Here he was healing these people and raising the dead. And yet Lazarus was sick. And they sent him a message. Lord, the one you love is sick. And he intentionally let him die. It made no sense to Mary and Martha why he would do that. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And we know you could have got here in time because our messenger got to you in back in time. You could have got here in time, but you chose not to. Of course, it makes a whole lot more sense later on when he raises him from the dead, does he not? Not fighting back in his arrest in the garden probably made no sense. They had seen the power that he had, that he could command the fig tree to wither and tell the wind and the waves to be still and call people from the dead. And yet, when these people come to arrest him, earlier they had tried to push him off the, the, the hill in Jerusalem, in Nazareth and kill him. But he just, by his own power, walked back through the crowd and nobody could touch him. But now in the garden, why is he letting himself be taken? And he didn't even tell him to get swords. Yeah. Why? It makes no sense. Of course, it makes sense later. Thank God he let himself be crucified. So that we could be forgiven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my, no, my blood in John chapter 6 had to make no sense. And actually in the scripture it says, upon hearing this, many of his disciples stopped following him. They said, this is a hard teaching. He wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's cannibalism. That doesn't make any sense. Of course it makes sense now. He was talking figuratively about the fact that in the same way in which you need to eat and to drink in order to live physically, if you by faith will eat and drink for your life spiritually, hit what he did through his body and through his blood. You live. 
And that's why when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not His actual body and His blood. It's, he's already been sacrificed once for all. It's a reminder. And we're physically, symbolically saying, my spiritual life comes through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when I eat it and I drink it, I'm showing you that I'm totally trusting spiritual life through Jesus and what He's done. I'll eat Him and drink Him because that's my only way to be right. Why Peter was released from prison and James was not... Makes no sense. I don't know if you know that story, but when Peter had his miraculous release from prison, just a few days earlier, James was in that same prison and he was put to death. And when Herod saw that this made the Jews happy, he had Peter arrested. And then God releases Peter from the prison. Why didn't he release James? And oh, by the way, all of these things I just talked to you about, they made sense later. This one still doesn't. I don't know why. Jesus said that John the Baptist of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, his head was cut off. Oh, do you know why? Because a little girl danced for the king and his guys. And it pleased the king. And he said to her, whatever you want up to the half of my kingdom. And being a little girl and not knowing what that means and what she wants, she runs to her mother and says, what what do I want? And her mother says, tell him you want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Because she was mad at John the Baptist for saying that what she was doing was sin. And the reason John the Baptist's head was cut off is because a little girl danced and the king made a foolish vow and the mother said, that's what I want. It doesn't make sense. But one day later it will. Righteous Job, losing his family, his possessions, and even his health, made no sense. And actually, the Bible doesn't tell us why. Even when Job has his encounter with God... God never tells him why. But Job's answer was, I've seen you and that's enough for me. Shall we go on? Romans chapter 11. I've quoted it to you a bunch. Verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, His paths beyond tracing out. Who's ever known the mind of God? Who's been His counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him for from him and to him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Paul says, you're never going to figure him out. Stop thinking you will. Doesn't make sense now, but that's what the Word says. And we're going to be faithful to it and we're going to trust that one day it will make sense. 1 John chapter 2. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Look at verses 28 through chapter 3 verse 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He's righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of Him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. How old are we going to be when we get to heaven? I don't know. The people out there try to tell you you'll be 33 the rest of your life. Because that was the age Jesus was when He died. And I say, knock it off. Because the Bible says, what we will be has not been made known. So if anybody tries to tell you what it's going to be like... Take them to this passage. If it has not been made known, you don't know. But we know this much. When He appears, we're going to be like Him. That's good enough. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Look at verse 12. And we'll wrap up with this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Moses, by faith, did something that probably didn't make any sense. But later on it did. I'm going to tell you to keep following God in obedient faith. Fear God. Trust Him for your provision and your protection. Avoid the temptation of pleasures of sin for a season. And again, 
Pleasures of sin is anything that God has not designed for you. And how He wants to live His life through you. Anything that's not done of God, that is done independent of God, is of the flesh. And the flesh counts for nothing because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I'm going to ask you this question. In what way are you faithing God today? Well, I've trusted Him as my Savior. Good for you. That was a long time ago probably. How are you faithing God today? And what way are you being obedient to His Word and to His promises and trusting that He'll come through? Don't try to help Him. Don't try to use man's ways. I was reading uh, this past week in Chuck Swindoll's book, Grace Awakening, written a long time ago actually. And he makes this wonderful statement that I never really looked at this way. He said, one of the problems with the flesh is this. It works. It's successful. We have the ability to do in our own strength a lot of things that are impressive. We're able to come up with a wonderful fundraising plan and raise lots of money. And we think it's God because it worked. Yet, anything that's done of the flesh and not by God has not God's glory or God's power or God's grace and it counts for nothing before Him. And one of the problems is our churches today are full of men and women who are using the principles of this world and basic reasoning and doing things of the flesh because it seems to make sense. And it worked. How could we not say it didn't? I'm going to challenge you. Wait upon God. Wait upon God. Let me pray for us. Father, Thank you again for this chance to open up your word and to see again what it means to live by faith each week as we just take a small section and allow you to to open up our eyes to the whole of Scripture and how it ties together. We're encouraged again by these men and women of faith. And Lord, we have to admit, as we're going to get to next time we get together, that (laughs) they trusted even though they didn't see in their lifetime sometimes. Lord, are we going to be willing to trust you in that same way? The reason why the world doesn't understand us is it doesn't understand you. The reason why the world doesn't know us is they don't, understand, they don't know you. Yet we have a tendency to try to be like them instead of to trust in you. And so, Father, today, we, may we realign ourselves in faith with you. And may we not look to the world or man's ways for our provision and our protection, but may we look to you and you alone. Father, may we be still and know that you're God. May we wait until you say move. May we wait and watch your salvation come. And Father, may you consider us to be men and women of faith. And I pray, knowing that the Scriptures are completed and that we have the whole uh, canon of Scripture, but if you were to choose to write some more and extend chapter 11 into today, may there be men and women in this room which could be added to that chapter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.